Welcome to the Wealth Studying Podcast. I'm John Pugliano, your host. I'm the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. And today we're carrying on our 10-part series of studying the wealth building principles. Today we're going to cover wealth building principle number two, live debt-free. Now it may seem like common sense that to live debt-free and to build your savings would be a natural step in the progress of building wealth, but you would be surprised how many people even people that are extremely uh, high income earners don't understand that that principle or that concept. Some of the notorious violators of this concept are doctors and uh, also executives, corporate executives. People that like to lead flashy lives. Uh, they spend uh, a lot more money than they bring in. And so at the end of the day, they're still living paycheck to paycheck, just like Joe Sixpack. If you don't believe it's true, definitely look at the statistics. There are a lot of people that are making a hundred or more thousand dollars. The problem is they're spending 10 or 20 percent well beyond that. We're going to get into a little bit about how people get into that situation. But for now, let's focus on, on two aspects of savings. Uh, the, the things that we'll cover in this episode will be saving as a, as a building block and as a foundation for building wealth. And then also saving as a lifestyle. And this relates back to the first principle of wealth building, which is wealth is freedom. Let's talk about the foundational part first. I'm going to share a secret with you that everybody knows. You've heard people say the rich get richer. Well, it's true. And do you know why? The rich get richer because they can put their money to work for them. You can go to work and you can earn uh, whatever, $10 an hour, a million dollars an hour. You know, it depends if you're flipping hamburgers or if you're a professional athlete or professional entertainer how much you're going to make per hour. But at the end of the day, you can still only make so much per hour. So to actually build wealth, you have to get paid beyond what you make in an hour, uh, what you make as a, as a wage. And the way you do that is by putting your assets to work for you, putting your money to work instead of you working. So 24 hours a day, your assets can be compounding and accumulating wealth. That may be through a small business that you own. It may be money that you have in real estate. It may be money that you have in the stock market. The point is the rich get richer because they have more money to begin with. They have more money to put to work. So the point of the matter is the wealthy, the rich people get richer because they have more money to put to work for them. Imagine each little dollar being a little working slave for them. If you have $1,000, you have a 1,000 little slaves. If you have a million dollars, you have a million little slaves. Guess which one you're going to get wealthier on? The million dollars, right? Think of it this way. Uh, people were always asking me, hey, John, I got an extra, you know, I got $1,000 to invest. What should I do with it? Well, I'm going to tell you in later episodes what you should do with it. But suffice it to say for now, you shouldn't be investing it. And here's why. If you only have $1,000 and you study and you work real hard and you understand the uh, investment landscape and you're able to get a 10% return on your $1,000, well, you just made $100. So if you factor in all the hours you spent trying to get that 10% return, you probably ended up making less than $10 an hour. So you could have made more money flipping hamburgers or washing cars or cutting grass or uh, even not going out to dinner a couple nights, right? That would have saved you $100. So the point I'm trying to make here is, again, it, savings is the foundation to wealth because you have to have that, that foundation built. You have to have that accumulation of wealth to make money. Now let's look at that same scenario. Let's say that you have a million-dollar portfolio and that you spend some time and effort and you 
find out a way to get a 10% return on that. Well, now 10% return on a million dollar portfolio is going to be $100,000. You may have spent a month of studying and effort to manage that portfolio, and that may have been spread out over a year, but in terms of actual working time, maybe you only spent 30 days at it and you made $100,000. That's about twice the average uh, take-home pay for families in America today. So you see, the effort you put into it is a lot less, even though you got a much greater reward, and that's because you had a bigger amount to work with, right? Think of it as a big shovel. The bigger the shovel you have, the bigger the ditch you can dig or the bigger the ditch you can fill in. If you think of it in terms of weapons, you know, if you go to a gunfight, are you going to bring a 22 or are you going to bring a 45 caliber? Yeah, both are weapons, both can do the job, but a 45 caliber uh, as a defensive weapon is going to do a whole lot more for you, has a whole lot more stopping power than a 22 rimfire would. So think of that in terms of your savings. That's why it's important that you live debt-free so that you can accumulate this wealth, so you can put the wealth to work for you, so that you can continue, again, live a free lifestyle. Now, let's talk about savings. The equation to savings, obviously, is that you your savings are your earnings minus the, your cost of living, you know, the things that you spend. In this episode, we're going to focus on the cost of living. In other episodes, we'll be talking about increasing your earnings power. Uh, but for sake of the second wealth building principle of living debt-free, let's just talk about what it costs you to live. Think of all the things that you, you buy every day, uh, the things that you need to support your family. It really boils down to most of your assets are spent on two things, and those are, tend to be durable goods, and that would be shelter and transportation. Now, you may rent, you may live in an apartment or something, but I'm going to speak in generalities, and so I'm going to talk in terms of shelter as you owning a home, because even if you're renting, you're paying you know, $300 a month, $2,000 a month in rent, whatever it is, that, would, that equivalent amount would be spent on a mortgage. So we're, going to, we're not going to talk about renting, we're just going to talk about owning in this example, or, or at least funding a mortgage, financing a mortgage. So those durable goods that you spend your most on, we're talking about shelter and transportation. So that's your home and your car. Now, of course, we do spend a lot of money on other things, food, uh, leisure activities, health care, education. Uh, but when you add all those up, they, don't, uh, they generally don't account for as much as you're spending on those first two items, which happen to be durable goods. So let's break those down. Let's talk about them. Your shelter, your home. Now let's focus on your home, and let me start out by saying, uh, when I talk about your home, and when I talk about things throughout these podcast episodes, I'm not telling you how to live. It's none of my business how you live. I'm not telling you what you should spend your money on or what you shouldn't. The point that I'm trying to make is to give you some guidance as to how you can create a lifestyle, a frugal lifestyle that will help you one day be financially independent. And so when you're financially independent, you'll realize that you have a lot more freedom than you do if you're stuck and burdened with a lot of bills or consumer spending. And the information I'm going to give you are based on my own personal life experiences, how I've accumulated my own wealth, as well as the successful, what I call middle-class millionaires that I've been studying for the last uh, several decades. Now, the statistics are out there. You can look them up for yourself. You can also read the works of Dr. Thomas Stanley, who wrote The Millionaire Next Door. I read his book when it first came out in 1996. It had a fundamental change in my way of thinking and helped me put myself on that course 
to becoming financially independent. So I know these principles work. Again, I'm not telling you how to live. I'm just making suggestions and you can decide uh, what's right and what's wrong for you. But when it comes to owning your home, if you want to do what middle-class millionaires have done or what Dr. Thomas Stanley calls the millionaire next door, you have to cap your spending at two and a half to three times your annual income on your home. So if you have an annual income of $50,000, you would want to cap your mortgage on a home that would be $150,000. So $50,000 income, $150,000 mortgage. If you made a $100,000 income, you would want to cap your mortgage at $300,000. It's a very simple rule. It's a rule of thumb. There's means for interpretation, obviously, on that. But what I'm telling you is that's the way that simple middle-class people have been able to accumulate wealth. And what they don't do is every time they get a job promotion is they sell their house and they move up to a bigger one. That's the flaw. That's the mistake that consumers make, that high consumers make, and they never accumulate any wealth. Now, some of you may be saying, hey, I live in New York. I live in New York City, and I can't, I can't buy a house for $300,000. Well, you know what? You're right. If you're living in New York City, and you're only making $100,000 and you're living in a in a home that's has a mortgage of 400 or 500 or $600,000, that may be what's available, that may be the market price, but the chances of you accumulating enough wealth uh, by the time you're in your late 40s or early 50s are probably slim to none. So you have the reality of do you relocate or do you find a way to make more money? That's uh, really what your choices are. These are hard choices, but they're reality. Now, the things you need to think about are what's really important to you. I've lived all over this country. I would take job promotions and constantly move from city to city every couple of years. And I was always able to find a home that was in that two and a half to three times my annual income. It wasn't always easy. Sometimes it took a lot of searching. Oftentimes it meant that I didn't live in the best neighborhood. Now, that doesn't mean I lived in the ghetto. It just doesn't mean that I lived in the top of the line neighborhood. It may mean that I had to drive a little farther to work or... You know, that the area I was in wasn't as trendy, but I looked for the things that were most important to my family. I looked to make sure that the it was a good, safe environment for my, my wife and children to live in. I looked at it, it was, an, it was a, an area that had good schools for my children to go to. I looked at the culture of the area to make sure that it was similar to my family so that we could assimilate into that neighborhood. And it was, were there friends for my children to play with? Was, uh, was there a church for us to attend? All those kind of cultural things factored into where we lived. But I always found a way to stay within that income restriction. And since your home is likely to be your single largest purchase, that's why it's so important that you spend time to find the right house in the right price range. Now let's look at some case studies of people that lived by this rule or people that violated this rule. Let's look at engineers. Engineers tend to be disproportionately uh, millionaires are disproportionately um, financially independent when compared to other career groups. And this is especially true when you look at engineers that focus on things like mining engineering, petroleum engineering, uh, industrial engineering. These would be men or women that not only are in the engineering field, but their jobs tend to have them live in areas that are um, not major metropolitan areas. So although software engineers obviously are incredibly wealthy, um, if, you're, if you're working for, for Google uh, or some high-tech company and you're forced to live in San Francisco where it's very expensive, 
It would be harder for you to build wealth than, say, you're a petroleum engineer that's living somewhere uh, in, a, in, a, in a more rural area of Oklahoma or a, a mining engineer that's living somewhere in western Pennsylvania. Okay, you get the picture. These are people that are making above average incomes, but they're living in below average cost of living areas. So among these engineers is where you'll find the highest percentage of millionaires, even though they may not have the highest, in, although they may not have the highest income level. So these are people that obviously are living well within their means. They have high earnings, they have low cost of living, they rather than spend all that money on their home since they're in a more rural area, they're able to save that money. And as we talked about, they're able to put that money to work for them. That's that's what I'm talking about. Now, you may not be a petroleum engineer and able to live in a more rural area, so you have to adjust accordingly. You may tell me that, you know, hey, I'm living in New York City. I'm only making $100,000. It doesn't go very far. I can't get a place to live for under $500,000. Now, that all may be true, but it's also true that your likelihood of becoming financially independent are drastically reduced. So you have to make that commitment. Do you want to try and move? Do you want to try and make more income. Those are your really only two choices. Now let's look at the other side of the equation, the people that violate this rule, and this would be the, the people that have above average income, but they have a disproportionate amount of uh, millionaires or amount of, of people that are financially independent in this particular career segment. And this would be the corporate executive. And I'm not necessarily talking about the, um, the vice presidents of, of major corporations because they're earning enough where they can compensate for the higher cost of living they may encounter. But I'm talking about the 99% that never make it that far up. So your, your mid-level managers and your lower, um, lower C-level type executives. So let's play this out. Let me explain to you how it works. Let's, for example, say that you have this young person that comes to work for a big corporation and they start out as a, as a low-level salesman and they start out in a small region of the country. Let's say they're in Des Moines, Iowa and they're a really good salesperson and in a couple of years they get promoted and they move them from Des Moines to say Minneapolis and they get to be a territory manager and they travel that area and they have salesmen working under them and they do a really good job and then they get moved from the Twin Cities to say Chicago and they get to be uh, you know, a, a a vice president or regional manager or something, and and they do another good job there, and they get the next time they get promoted, they go to New York City. So you can see each step along the way, they went to a more expensive city. They went from Des Moines to Minneapolis to Chicago to New York. Every time they moved, they got a promotion. But what do you think they did every time they moved? They bought a bigger house, right? When they lived in Des Moines, they had a small house. They had a, probably had a small family. They were at a much smaller income. You know, by the time they get to Chicago or New York City, they think they're a big executive. They're making you know well into the six figures. So they buy the house on the golf course. Um, it has to be in a more prestigious neighborhood. They've got to uh, entertain people or entertain people with their, in their within their corporation. Maintain a certain st appearance of a standard of living. And what happens is is all of those promotions, all of that increase in earnings that they received, rather than it turning into earning and wealth building power for them, it just goes to pay their bills. So sure, they're living in a nicer neighborhood, they're living in a bigger home, but at the end of the month, they're broke and they probably have less disposable income than they did back when they were just a lowly salesman living in Des Moines, Iowa. That's the American consumer attitude and that's why so many people find themselves in debt. 
Now let's look at the other big durable good that we talked about, and that's transportation. First of all, whether you own a car or whether you use public transportation or however you get around, every time you move, it costs you money. As a rule of thumb, just think about 50 cents a mile. If you have to commute every day and go 30 miles one way, well, round trip is costing you at least $30 a day to do that. So again, run the math on that. So you do some back-of-the-envelope calculations on that and, and find out how much you're spending in commuting dollars, and that helps you determine how close you need to work uh, to your home. You know, what's that commuting distance? What's the trade-off? Are you ending up spending all the money on transportation, or should you just buy a home that's closer to work and spend the extra money on the home? You need to do that analysis to determine how you, how you factor that in. But whatever you do, think about 50 cents a mile. So the next time you're going to run down uh, to get uh, a cup of Starbucks coffee or buy some bread milk at the store. Think about that 50 cents a mile. How much did you just did you spend another three or four or ten dollars driving to the store? Maybe you shouldn't drive as much. Maybe you shouldn't commute as much. Let's talk about the vehicle that you own. Let's talk about your car. Now we buy cars to get around, but we also buy cars for social status. I understand that. Again, I'm not telling you how to live. I'm not telling you not to buy a Lamborghini. I'm just telling you that the more money you spend on a car, the less money you have to put to work for you, and the less likely you're going to be wealthy. So you, just like the, we talked about with the home, you may have a big home. It may look like you're wealthy, but if you're taking all your money to pay off your Lamborghini or your Lexus or your Tesla or whatever fancy car you drive, then at the end of the day, you're not wealthy. At the end of the month, you're broke, just like Joe Sixpack. So think about that car you drive. And again, think about the engineers that we talked about. These guys are living in a more rural area. Uh, the mining engineer, he's probably driving a pickup truck, right? He's probably not driving a $85,000 Land Rover. He's probably driving a Ford F-150 pickup truck for, you know, $25,000. That's why he's building wealth and you are not. So it just comes down to your lifestyle choices. Do you want to drive a big flashy car that you can't afford? Or do you want to drive a car that's more affordable and have money in the bank? Let's look at my own lifestyle. First of all, I always drive cars that I keep for 10 or 15 years. If I buy a car new, I don't get rid of it for at least 10 or 15 years. And chances are at that time that I've passed it on to, you know, to a child or a family member or something like that because it doesn't have any resale value. But I get every dollar I put into it out of it. I don't have a rule of thumb for you on how much you should spend as a, as a percentage of your income like we did with the home purchase. But what I do have is the principle that I've lived by, which is if you don't have cash to pay for that car, don't buy it. And you're going to tell me, well, hey, I'm making $50,000 and I don't have the $35,000 to buy the car that I want. Well, you're exactly right. You don't have the $35,000 cash to buy that and you shouldn't buy it. You need to look at buying a used car for ten dollars or $15,000 and save your money until you can buy a better car. I know that's a hard thing to say. I know that's a hard concept to live by and I'm not telling you how to live your life. What I am telling you, though, is that that's the way I did it in my life, and that's the way I've seen countless millionaires that I've been studying over the decades. That's what they did. The first car I ever bought new was a Volkswagen Golf. Um, I didn't have any children at the time. It was a great little commuting car. It, it uh, at that time, many years ago, cost under $10,000. I had cash for it, and I bought it, and I've lived that way my whole life. Many times in my life, I bought used cars. Again, I could have afforded the payments to buy a new car, but I thought it was much more practical to own a used car than it was to make payments on a car that ultimately I couldn't afford. 
Now I promise you, if you take care of those two big durable items we talked about, your home and your car, you live within your means, you don't pay more than three times your annual income for the mortgage on your home, and you don't move every time you get a promotion, that extra in incremental income that you keep getting over the years from promotions, you just start putting that aside in savings. On your car, you pay cash for your cars. If you have $25,000 cash, you buy a new car. If you don't, you save up five or 10000 and you buy a used car. And then you run those cars till they fall apart. That's the path to getting to be financially independent. If you live that lifestyle, then you also be frugal on the other thing, on the consumer items. Um, you know, you'll, you'll eat out less. You'll be more frugal in the consumer products that you spend. Uh, and let's talk about some consumer products real quickly. As far as things like electronics, you never buy more than what you need. If you need a new computer or a laptop or a tablet or a smartphone, whatever it is, don't buy the one that has the most memory or the most uh, computing power. Buy the one that you need that meets the job that you want because you know that in three months or six months or 12 months, what you just bought is going to be totally obsolete. So if you buy the top of the line in three months, it's not going to be the top of the line anymore. Now on more, on more durable goods, on things like furniture or like we talked about with the car, you're going to buy things that last. Buy the best quality that you can afford with the cash that you have. Uh, you know, you never buy anything on payments. You never put anything on a credit card that you're not going to pay off in 30 days. But you buy the best quality that you can afford and then you keep and maintain it and preserve it and repair it and it'll last you a lifetime. I can give you countless examples of things that I've owned for decades, multiple decades, that were it was just a one-time purchase and because I didn't abuse them, because I took care of them, because I repaired them when they needed fixed, they just lasted and lasted. And that's everything from, you know, uh, from a wristwatch to, to furniture. I'll give you a perfect example of furniture. If you come into my home, you'll find that I live in a, in a nice home and I, it's nicely decorated. And I have nice furniture, uh, but they're not all new pieces. Many of them are, are older pieces, pieces that, you know, other family members have owned that I've had refurnished. And let me give you just one example. My brother was born in 1957 and my parents went out in that year and they bought him a brand new wooden crib. Now this, of course, like I say, is in the 50s. This is when things were built in, in America and they were made of quality. But they bought that crib in 57. Four years later, I was born. I was put in that crib. Uh, we didn't have any children after me. My mother wrapped that crib up and she put it in the attic. And that crib stayed in that attic for 26 years until 1987 when I had my first child. And I brought my daughter home from the hospital. I put her in that exact same crib. Now, I had had it cleaned up. I had it, had it sanded down and refinished. It was all nice and safe and spanky new clean. But I put my first child in that. And I not only raised my first child in that, but all six of my children were raised in that crib. And now that very same crib is wrapped up and it's stored in my basement and it's awaiting use by one of my grandchildren. You think about how many years, how many different children, how many different generations have been in just that one crib. And that's a crib that was purchased one time and only had one refinishing repair made to it. And it's lasted all these decades upon decades. We're talking nearly 60 years. That's the way quality, durable goods work. Buy the best you can afford, take care of them, repair them when they break. Don't throw them away and go out and buy new. Now, if you live your life this way, you'll develop a frugal lifestyle, particularly when you save on your home and on your car, that'll just trickle down into the rest of your, into the rest of your spending. And you'll find that 
you won't waste money. You won't waste money eating out all the time in restaurants. You won't waste money eating, you know, fast junk food. Um, and, and with that comes the benefits of not only the financial part, because remember, the, the purpose of this podcast isn't that you get wealthy just for the sake of having money. It's that you can become wealthy so that you become free. You want to be a free man or a free woman. You don't want to be indebted to anyone. You don't want to be restrained by anyone. So the benefits of this lifestyle are not only the income part, but you also find as in, you know, eating out in restaurants and things rather than eating cheap fast food or just even going out and spending all your money in in nice restaurants, you're going to stay home more. You're going to prepare your meals. You're going to eat healthier. You're going to be less likely to have diabetes or be obese or have heart disease or cancer because you're going to eat healthy, nutritious food that you prepare from, from scratch as opposed to getting out of a box or getting from a fast food restaurant. These are the benefits that are derived from having a wealth-setting lifestyle. So that's going to wrap up episode two as we talked about the second principle of wealth building, which was living a debt-free life. I encourage you to evaluate where you're at now and look at ways that you can take costs out of your life so that if you're not living debt-free now, you can put yourself on a path where you can be and where you're saving money as opposed to wasting money. Now I invite you to join us on our next episode, which we will discuss the third wealth building principle, which is production is the source of wealth. If you have any questions that you'd like to submit to the podcast or give us comments, you can do so on our website. That's wealthsteading.com. Thank you for listening. This is John Pagliano.